Hey everyone, welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. My name is Michael Freeman. I'm Alex Rose. And uh, oh, today oh, I said I was I was going to do something. Okay, that's fine. We'll just take it. I'll just take it from here. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. I'm Michael Freeman. I'm Alex Rose. We have a bit of a shorter episode for you this week. Uh, we have no guest, and I'm a little bit sick, you may be able to hear, so I hope that does not dampen your listening experience. If anything, Will, it might be this cold weather we've been having. I guess no one told the weather that it's May, but anyway. Buzzing. Uh, yeah, what are those, we going to be talking about those. this week, Alex? <laughs> um, well, it's that time of year again, and all the hate crime stats are coming in. So in Toronto, Jews have topped the list every year since 2006, and last year was the same. But there are some problems with how the data is gathered that we want to look into. We're also going to be asking, do Jews really need to worry about one woman's calming feelings? Rashida Tlaib is in the spotlight, and she is Twitter's favorite subject this week. But before any of that, uh, Alex, we are hosting a party. Are we? We're hosting a launch party, everyone. We've joined forces with... Our little brother podcast, The Menschwarmers, our uh, podcast about Jewish sports. And we're going to be hosting a launch party on uh, May 26th, which is just after Lug Baomer. Uh, Alex, are you are you a Lug Baomer fan? I am. I am now, at least, now that there's a party. How do you normally celebrate Lug Baomer? Uh, I normally celebrate it by realizing that it's Shavuot, which means Lug Baomer must have been about two weeks ago. <laughs> That's, that's about right. You don't count the Omer? Uh, no, but this year, maybe I will. What do about you, you? I don't know how to count do you, the Omer. Do you shave? Do you, Is that do what you, you're supposed to do? You're supposed to not shave during the Omer, except on Lugba Omer, you're allowed to well, that's like, just, get haircuts and stuff. That's just my life. It's <laughs> just generally Yeah, people sometimes say like, oh, Alex, you're really growing out your beard. And my response is usually just, this is just me not doing anything. <laughs> I guess we lived that Omer life most of the year. Lug. Momer. I was trying to do a Movember thing there. Oh, I didn't oh. understand. Nope. Nope. That didn't work. <laughs> will I cut that or will I leave it in? I'll leave it in. Uh, if you want but, to hear more of these not so great jokes, you know where to be on uh, so, May 26th. So May 26th, uh, I actually don't know where to be because I didn't say where oh. it was. It is in out. Christie Pitts Park in uh, Toronto. That's uh, near Christie Station on the subway line. Uh, we've got an actual bonfire. That's like the one thing that we do know about like Momer yes. is we've got... Uh, we, we booked a bonfire pit. Um, we're expecting upwards of a dozen people. So <laughs> you if, could be those people. If you're listening to this and you live in Toronto or for some reason you love this podcast enough that you want to make the trip into Toronto just for this party, I wholly encourage it. Uh, Christy Pitts, 5 p.m., Look for the Jews who look like they talk on a podcast. <laughs> uh, we'll be around a, a, one of the fire pits. As and... opposed to all those other Jews <laughs> 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 who are so strapping. And... <laughs> yeah, May 26th, 5 p.m., Christy Pitts. We'll see you there. Now on to some more serious news. Toronto police released their 2018 annual hate crime statistical report. Once again... Jews are at the top of the list. We've been at the top of the list since 2006. This year, there were 50 reported hate crimes in the Toronto region uh, against Jews. That's slightly down from last year when it was 53, uh, which is 
yeah, uh, all of it, all of Toronto was was down uh, actually. So that's that's nice. There is a bit of a, a problem with this stuff when you start to try to get a more comprehensive picture of it. Because first of all, fifty for all of Toronto seems low. Yeah, I mean, I I thought it would be a bit more, especially if it's a significant percentage of all the hate crimes in Toronto. That means there's what less than two hundred, maybe around two hundred in the whole city all year out of a couple million people. Yeah, the second the second place uh, was. Uh, Muslims who reported 18 incidents, and then blacks with 16. Yeah, that all sounds low. I mean, based on the, some of the categorizations of these hate crimes, you know, vandalism and is one big category. Intimidation is another. I don't know if this counts. I was on the bus once, and a man just started hurling gay slurs at me for the whole ride, which was very <laughs> uncomfortable. And I think, like, if he'd been saying Jewish slurs, I might have felt compelled to report it but i guess you look more gay than jewish yeah it could be both i've been called out as a jew a lot of times too <laughs> so <laughs> i will say the, the the first thing that always springs to my mind especially in toronto just because i know the makeup of the city a little bit is that it it's for me these statistics are always more a reflection of a community's relationship with the police mm -hmm. than it is the actual objective number of hate crimes i'm really sincerely skeptical that there are more hate crimes in the city of Toronto against Jews than African Canadians. I, I, I certainly than Muslims and African Canadians. I combined. just yeah, I'm I I just don't buy that this is a total. So I think partly it's reflective of a community's willingness to pick up the phone and call the police to approach the police, and and moreover, it's a reflection partly because they're very low numbers of how many statistics police actually, or, or how many reports, I should say, police actually take seriously and follow up on. A lot of times when somebody will approach police with a hate crime report, it's not even taken up as a hate crime report. It's, it's, it's regarded as a hate crime incident or a hate crime, uh, a hate crime complaint, right? So you don't even have a consistent, we don't know how many complaints there are. We don't know how many minor incidents are kind of dismissed. You have to fit a very specific criteria in uh, the, the, the guidelines of what constitutes a hate crime in Toronto, which may not even be the same as, as other cities because it's a municipally defined thing. So there's a huge gap of knowledge because we don't know the, the total number of complaints versus the ones that are dismissed versus the ones that are followed up on. And when you look at this more broadly, because there's so little federal uh, government data on this issue, it's up to these private organizations to fill in the gaps. So that's where you have things like uh, B'nai B'rit Canada, which also, just a few weeks ago, came out with their audit of anti-Semitic incidents in 2018. Let's look at all of Canada. They say that there were 2,041 incidents of anti-Semitism in 2018, more than 2,000, 50 of which, the, the, I mean, they're not the same numbers, but, but according to Toronto Police, there's 50 in Toronto alone. Those numbers don't work together, no matter how you, how you put it. Yeah, the city where a large proportion of Canadian Jews live had a very small proportion based on May Brith's numbers compared to Toronto Police's numbers. Do you want to make this number make even less sense? Sure. You look at the United States, comparable organization, the Anti-Defamation League. Guess how many anti-Semitic uh, reports that were filed in 2008 in the U.S.? 583. That's a very specific and, and very low number. 2,000 in Canada and 500 in the States? Oh, Make that 5,083. <laughs> What's up with 83? Is that like a... I don't know. I, I, it was just jumped into my head. Okay. No is reason. It, I didn't think I, is that your, Is hard. that your final answer on this guess? Yeah. 
Well, I figured there was going to be some kind of twist the way you were <laughs> you were leading up to it. Well, there is a twist. The twist is that the total number was 1,879. So there was less. <laughs> fewer. Yes. There were fewer by approximately 200, according to the ADL versus B'nai B'rith, even though Canada has one-tenth the population of the U.S. Do you know why? I feel like I'm about to learn. <laughs> Obviously, it's the way that they count the numbers, right? Does it have something it... to do with the number 83 again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing the number everywhere. <laughs> um, no, so it has to do with... Uh, Obviously, it's the way they, they count these numbers, right. right? So you've got the government, which is based solely on, like, police reports. If you're a group like the ADL or B'nai B'rit, you're, you're counting whatever people are um, filing to you kind of privately on your own. B'nai B'rit Canada counts online reports of harassment. 80% of that 2,000 number were online reports, like Facebook. Like, somebody said an anti-Semitic thing on Twitter. Right. So, of course, it's going to be upwards of 2,000. Yeah. I'm not saying this to try to deflate or, or belittle the numbers in any way. It's a big deal, right? There's lots of anti-Semitism in the world, and uh, Canadians need to be vigilant, etc. But the problem with all of these numbers is when you see this number and you don't do any other research to contextualize it, these numbers almost don't make sense. When you start to contextualize it, the numbers still don't really make sense because there's no comprehensive data on a federal level. Why does that data not exist? Because it's expensive? I don't know, because <laughs> it would take too much effort? Based on my understanding, because a lot of these hate crime reports are filed at a municipal level, in order to corral all these municipalities' different hate crime reports into one thing uh, is just a magnitude too much work than any police department or any government has been willing to do. That's my that's my guess, my based on the understanding. I did... A little bit of research, too, even though you did most of it. <laughs> I had to bring something to this episode. And I found an, um, an article on the forward that said, this is from the FBI hate crime statistic reporting last year. And it said, even though Jews, uh, I think, topped the list or were near the top of the list, um, the vast majority, three quarters of their hate crimes reported against were vandalism. Most of the others were intimidation. 7% was assault and 1% was aggravated assault. And that's all bad. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because Muslim people, a third of the hate crimes against them were assault. Gay people, a full half of them were assault. So when you just lump all these things under hate crimes, it's not necessarily painting an accurate picture of who is being subjected to hate and how. And I will say, I've been Jewish my whole life, you know, living Jewish, if not visibly Jewish and that I don't wear a kippah. I've gone to Jewish, I went to Jewish day school for 14 years. I'm involved in Jewish organizations. I've never felt hated as a Jew personally. I've never you're been so attacked. much more Jewish than I am. Yeah, and I know I have Muslim friends. I have friends. I have uh, you know black friends or brown friends. Friends who I know have been victims of not necessarily assault, but like you know people have had their hijabs pulled off their head, or people have been called names or or told to get out of the country, things like that. I know people this has happened to in multiple times. Right? And did they did they go to the police? Do you know? I don't. I I don't know if they do. Maybe they tried and didn't get anywhere you know it's hard to for the police to do much about someone calling someone a name and especially if it happens often which is usually a reason for dismissing it by the way like yeah. if you go to the police and they say ah we're not going to catch this guy so we're not going to file we're not going to classify this as an actual hate crime yeah and then why would you keep going back if it's just to be a statistic that doesn't even get classified right so yeah. i think it's important to be aware of all the things that are happening to jewish people although 
anti-Semitism in Canada. And I don't know if you were thinking like, are we going to undermine the results if we talk honestly about them? But I think, you know, like you said, the context is important and being realistic about what's facing us and maintaining perspective uh, is really the best thing we can do. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that B'nai Brit, as an example, has existed for about 100 years, right? We have, as Jews, we're, we're pretty privileged in that respect. We have the infrastructure for reporting these things. And to my knowledge, at least in Canada, Jews are, I, I would argue, the most vigilant about reporting hate crimes against them more than any other group. I tried to find comparable ones in uh, uh, black and Muslim communities. I did not find anything of note. There are some, I spoke with uh, uh, Evan Belgard of the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network who follows this stuff way more closely than I do, and he confirmed that there's nothing substantial. There, there are some upstarts. There are some newer ones. There's something I found online called the, uh, the National Council of Canadian Muslims. They've, they have a similar tally. Uh, their tally has never exceeded 100 complaints, and in 2018, they had 41 across all of Canada, right? They don't have the infrastructure. And people probably don't know about them the same way they know about Maybrit. Exactly. They don't have the, the, the funding. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the, the knowledge. They don't have the name recognition, and, and it's similar for the African-Canadian uh, community. So Jews are, are pretty privileged. And it's good that we have these infrastructure. It's very good that we're able to be aware and report all 100% of it. agree with you. Uh, on on the plus side of all of this, if only every minority group were as vigilant as Jews, right? We should all be reporting every single incident. Um, uh, yeah, not not to you know, we're we're not knocking B'nai Brit. If anything, yeah, I'm just saying every other group should have something like B'nai Brit. Preferably, the government could do all of that reporting, so these community groups don't have to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Because then you still have the problem of comparing something like this this National Council of Canadian Muslims data against B'nai Brit's data, and apples don't always uh, uh, connect with other apples. They could be oranges. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, whereas if the government did it on a consistent level, then we would actually know, oh, okay, like these are the hard facts, right? And maybe we do count online stuff, maybe we don't. And, and you just have a consistent clear number across, across all of Canada. We just don't have that data. So... Yeah, it's report season. A lot of these reports are coming out, but look at them in context, not in isolation. And now we ask, do Jews really need to worry about the comments that Rashida Tlaib made about the Holocaust? What do you think, Alex? I think there might be some worrisome components, and I'll give my full answer once we're done discussing it. You um, always hedge everything. I, I think there might be some worrying components. Once my friend asked if I wanted to go see a movie with him, and I said, yeah, I'd like to. And then I texted him right back. Actually, I think I'd like to. Let me get back to you. And he said, oh, thank God. I was worried you'd be committal about something for a second. <laughs> Do you watch The Good Place? Yes. You know indecision is a yeah. cardinal sin. Uh, if you subscribe to The Good Place's scheme of morality, which no spoilers, but based on some recent developments, I'm not sure I do. You're going to hell. (laughs) Okay, so what do you think about this issue? I mean, on the one hand, there's the response to the comments, which I think um, the way that people clearly didn't listen to what she was trying to say is problematic in its own right. And that worries me a little bit. But I'm also worried about some of what she said. Um, There are more charitable and less charitable ways to interpret it. And that's what I'm still trying to figure out. 
Maybe we should just read the quote in full. I mean, one of my issues with this whole thing is that what she said makes absolutely no sense. I'm going to read the full. <laughs> I'm going to read the full sentence. I don't mean it doesn't make sense from a from a factual standpoint. I mean linguistically, it's a nonsense run-on sentence. So I'm just going to. So so she's talking about how recently, when this interview took place, recently it was it was Holocaust Remembrance Day. Here's the full quote. This is all one sentence. And there's a kind of calming feeling, I always tell folks, when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust in the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some of their lives, their livelihood, their human dignity, their existence in many ways had been wiped out, and some people's passports, I mean, just all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post the Holocaust, post the tragedy, and the horrific persecution of Jews across the world at that time. So what's she saying in that sentence? Because it goes on so long, I forget how it started. Yeah, although how it started is why most people jump down her throat. So I think a lot of people didn't forget. I think Correct. she's not going to be allowed to forget that the either. The fact that the first the first two seconds of, of that quote is, there's a common feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust. Don't say that if you're a politician. I, I, think, that, <laughs> I think that should go without saying. That was, the, that was the worst way to start a word salad. Absolutely. And, you know, you might say, well, if people listen to the full quote, they'd know, obviously, that she doesn't think the Holocaust is good. Yeah, but this is politics in 2019. We all know better than that. <laughs> you only get your worst soundbite. Assume that's what's going to make the rounds. So you had some concerns about what she actually did say. Yeah. I mean, I do want to say, first of all, there are people who there's the like the nonsense uncharitable interpretation, which is that she gets a calming feeling when she thinks about the Holocaust because she liked the idea of all the Jews dying and suffering. She did not say that. Not even like any plausible interpretation of that could understand that is what she was trying to say that's a far-right spin for your your ezra but it's not just far-right spin there was a, a i think a democrat congressman who said the same thing and it's just like that is that kind of response worries me because when there are legitimate gripes with people if we over exaggerate the threat or what they're saying and not even just you know in the spirit of what they're saying but to cartoonish proportions then it makes it much harder to have the difficult but necessary conversations about where we actually disagree and I'd say legitimately disagree, just in general. I mean, if I can give another example of this, because this is coming from the left, which, um, you know, in this case, it's the right cartoonishly over-exaggerating. And what I'm about to say isn't a cartoonish over-exaggeration, but do you remember when Trump said there were good people on both sides? Sure, that's that's pretty often uh, uh, recited as an example of how he's a, a Nazi sympathizer because it came after the Charlottesville rally. Is that is that what you're referring to? That, or, yes, yeah. it came after the Charlottesville rally, and people generally understand him to have been talking about people on the unite the right side of the rally and the protesters. But he was actually talking about people protesting taking down Robert E. Lee's statue. If you look at his transcript from that day, it's very clear that he was only talking about people who were in favor of keeping up the statue and not talking about people on Unite the Right. And I'm saying this because I've used that quote, there are good people on both sides, as like a prime example why I don't like Trump. But if it's not true, there are lots of other reasons why I don't like him. I don't think... Yeah, you don't, you don't need to take Trump's quotes out of context in order yeah. to make him look like a jerk. Well, yeah, I didn't realize it was out of context. But when we attack people for things they didn't say, that only decreases the legitimacy when we disagree with them for things that they do say. So now, <laughs> that was a long way of saying I do have some issues with what uh, Rashida Tlaib did say or what I believe she was trying to say. And there's even some different ways to interpret that. So on, on the note of interpretation, I just have to say the fact that people can't understand her actual initial quote is what makes me laugh about this yeah. whole thing. I don't think Jews have to worry about this. My, my stance is a hard no on this. I do not think Jews have to worry about uh, Congresswoman <laughs> Rashida Tlaib's calming feelings. First of all, like you say, she's just obviously not a, a, 
a real anti-Semite uh, in any meaningful sense. Yeah, although some people would disagree with you. Some people would disagree. I don't think that she is. I think there are, as, as we just talked about in the previous segment, there's a lot of real vandalism, assaults, and harassment going on against Jews. I don't think this woman's quote about a calming feeling ranks anywhere in that. What bothers me more about this story is the fact that it's a great example of a, a word, a linguistic mishmash that everybody is racing to figure out and that I don't think there was even that much thought put into in the first place. It's like when somebody, you know, somebody leaves like their sunglasses in the corner of an art gallery and everyone starts crowding around the sunglasses and saying, oh, what an interesting art exhibit. I wonder what these glasses, like, I don't <laughs> think it was that meaningful in the first place. I, I really just don't. And everybody's interpreting it in different ways. As an example, I saw on Twitter two reporters who I like and follow and respect, Yara Rosenberg from uh, Tablet, and Omar Mualam, who's a Canadian journalist down in, in Alberta. And Yer wrote uh, a tweet. Uh, he says, I see we're doing this thing again where someone on the left says something genuinely wrong and offensive about Jews. Republicans demagogue and inflate it. Progressives call out Republicans for that while conveniently sidestepping the original offense. Jews are left hanging. Which is just kind of like a funny, nice summary. And he says very specifically, he like, his issue is mostly with the historical inaccuracies, not with her being an anti-Semite. Omar comes in and says, he's, he's attacking this interpretation. He says, by no means did she suggest they welcomed Jewish settlers. Yara comes back saying, yeah, she is saying that. And I, I found that uh, reference specifically in her own office's defense and interpretation. And Omar says, maybe next time go by the source material, the interview that's being skewered, that should be our focus and not a vague defense statement. And so now we're in this weird, like, my problem with this whole debate is once you get into it, it's like, how are you going to interpret this? Oh, are you going to interpret it based on the statement afterward or by this? And it, it boils down to, like, even if you look at the statement that they came out with afterwards, it says, the congresswoman mentioned the role of Palestinians played in helping to provide a safe haven for Jewish people following the tragedy of the Holocaust. And now it becomes a debate over what the phrase helping means. Does it mean willful help or does it mean helped against their will? And it becomes a sort of vague, this is why people hate politicians is because they don't say anything specific or concrete half the time. And they use these vague words that can be interpreted in multiple ways. So and then we all start... podcasters. <laughs> you elucidate your points too much. It's I your know. problem. <laughs> Sorry, um, you're in the middle of a rant. but <laughs> Well, I, I mean, that's basically the end of it is, is I think the, the problem with this whole thing, I don't even want to get into the weeds of this personally because I think the whole thing is such nonsense. It becomes like a legal argument of what did you, what was your meaning mm -hmm. when you said this specific phrase, right? What do you mean by helping Jews? Yeah, like that's the charitable and uncharitable interpretations that I was talking about before, basically the ones that the journalist um, went through on, over Twitter. And, and Andrew Silocaro, who's the editor-in-chief of the Jewish Telegraph Agency, he had a... a piece about it that I read. And before I read it, I was more inclined to read her comments in the uncharitable interpretation, which was, I'd say the kind of historically inaccurate one that says like the Palestinian people willfully made room for Jewish people um, after the Holocaust and kind of granted them the land. Because that's what I first understood her to be saying with the words like provided and, and helped in the statement. And that is, you know, probably the way I would normally read those words with some will and intent. If, it didn't, you know, contradict what actually happened, as, right. as people know. That's and historically, I, broadly speaking, wrong. Yeah, and I don't think that's like the, the Palestinian narrative either, because their whole point is that they didn't willfully give up those lands and they still have a right to them. I, I do think, based on my knowledge, uh, I'm no scholar, but I understand that Palestinians did welcome Jews like 30 years before the Holocaust. Yeah. Like when Jews started showing up, 
the, the the local Arab population said, yeah, sure. I mean, you can set up whatever you want. And it was over time that they realized this was going to be a, a more serious issue. And then the conflict started sparking yeah. up throughout the 20s and 30s. By the time the Holocaust came around, I do like they were not on friendly terms. Yeah. So I think she was just confused about that from a historical standpoint. That's what I... That could be it too. Anyway, but what were you saying? Oh, yeah. Well, just so he was saying with the interpretation of saying like, you know, we provided it and helped the Jews, not necessarily because we have to, but it's still nice that uh, even though we lost something, we being the Palestinian people, we were able to help the suffering people. And he said there's... So Andrew Silo Carroll in his comment said, in his column said, there's still a lot that I take issue with based on what she has said and even what she's saying here which is the idea that like israel only exists because of the holocaust because as another article i read said these institutions existed before the holocaust you know for decades before there were jews uh, moving to the land and, and building it up to just kind of reduce the creation of israel to only being based on the holocaust is problematic there are other things he disagreed with but but that's what i mean you can have it also precludes the religious interpretation which is that jews belong there, yes. biblically speaking that's true too yeah um but you know if you Take a moment to look at what she actually said or tried to say. Even if you can't figure it out for sure, there's no way you're going to come to the conclusion that she liked the Holocaust, mm. if you're being in any way genuine. So, and then you can have a discussion like the ones that uh, that Omar and your ear had. They might not enjoy like this disagreement, but at least it seems to be in good faith because there are ways you could interpret her statements both ways. But my question: Why would you even bother interpreting yeah. her statements? Like, like it's so this argument is so minuscule. This happens a lot, I think. I can give you another sort of example of something like this. If you remember those Covington school kids with the MAGA hats who were smiling in the face oh, of... Oh, I purposely just ignored that whole thing. I think it was kind of comparable in that it was something that on the face in, in the first 24 hours was extremely one-sided and obviously wrong. In the subsequent 24 hours, there was a defense then from the kids, in this case from, from Congresswoman Talib, uh, saying, actually, it's the opposite that's true and you don't understand it at all. So in the first 24 hours, the one group had made up their minds. In the second 24 hours, the second group on the other side of the political spectrum made up their minds. And over time, the truth exists somewhere kind of in between where both you can see the fault from both perspectives. But by that point, it doesn't matter because both camps have made up their minds based on those first 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are now. So people already know whether they're defending her or attacking her. I'd say argue that they already knew even before she said anything. <laughs> Absolutely true. Um and at this point, the the full truth, as always, is somewhere in between the two extremes. But it doesn't matter because to try and parse out meaning and interpretations on a linguistic level, like people are on Twitter, like people are, uh, like we are, for God's sakes, <laughs> in this podcast, yeah. it doesn't matter because people already made up their minds uh, and, and the truth is lost to the political debate that happened in the first 48 hours. So do we need to worry about it? No! <laughs> you think it's yes? No, I think you've convinced me. Okay. We spend too much time worrying about things that don't go anywhere when there are things to actually worry about. And if you're worried about, you know, her policy as regards to Israel, I'm sure there are much more concrete things that you could point to than this word salad. Well, thanks for listening to that episode. We hope to see you at the Lugbo Omer fire. It's a, uh, it's a bonfire. It's not just like a bonfire. bonfire. <laughs> We're burning all the books. Yeah, that's right. Sunday, May 26th, 5 p.m., Christy Pitts. We will see you there. My name is uh, Michael Freeman. I will be there. Alex? I'm Alex Rose. I will also be there. There you go. We're also going to have Gabe Pulver and uh, Jamie Hirsch from the Menchformers podcast out there. You should give that a listen, too, if you like Jews or sports or both. 
This podcast is produced and edited by the both of us. Give us a listen. Give us a like. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know if you have any questions, if you have any comments. Leave us a review. And if there's someone you listen to podcasts that we're not on, let us know. And we'll be there soon. Thanks for listening.